are in the midst of a series called Alter Ego. And the, the point of this series we've been looking at is just a... Wow. All right. Here I am. Uh, this series has been all about kind of laying down our rights, our right to be right, our right to be in control, our right to be the center of our own little universe so that we can begin to kind of embrace what God has for us, not only our true identity as sons and daughters of God, but also the purpose that he has for us. And this morning, what I'd really like to look at is the way that we view ourselves in relationship to other people. I don't think it'll come as much of a shock to you guys that we live in a society that celebrates self-centeredness, that nurtures entitlement. Um, You know, all you need to do is turn on the television and we're inundated with commercials that declare you deserve to have it your way. Or we have, we have, um, you know, television shows, reality TV that is 100% focused on celebrating the cult of a, a single personality. And we are watching this and what we celebrate becomes the norm. Would you agree with that statement? Whatever it is that we celebrate as a society ultimately becomes the norm for our society. So as we celebrate personalities and individuals, we begin to celebrate ourselves. And then it comes as no shock that we then go online and we begin to present a false persona to the world around us. We become very good at image management on our Facebook, on our Twitter accounts. Everything that we do is designed subtly to make ourselves look a little bit better than we truly are. And, you know, gone are the days when a president can stand up and say, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's laughable almost because it's become almost the opposite mindset. Today, it's you deserve to have your country take care of you. You deserve to be happy without even really having to pursue it. It should just happen. And by the way, that whole statement in our Declaration of Independence, this is just an interesting side note, but it has a whole lot to do with the mindset of a culture. In the Declaration of Independence, when, when Thomas Jefferson was writing that, his idea of the fact that we all have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what he meant by happiness in that sense, is radically different from what we as a society today understand that to mean. There was a really interesting write-up in in Time Magazine last week. I'm not sure if any of you guys saw it. But it talked specifically about the fact that our view of happiness has changed from what it was originally intended to be. Today, we tend to look at happiness as it's about me. It's about my uh, getting what I need to be content, to be comfortable regardless of what it does to other people, regardless of what it takes or what it costs in terms of a relationship. And that is a far cry from what our original founders intended it to mean. I just want to read a couple of lines from this. When Jefferson spoke of pursuing happiness, he had nothing vague or private in mind. He meant public happiness, which is measurable. Scholars have long noted that for Aristotle, who was kind of the founder of this idea, as as well as the Greeks, who ultimately influenced Jefferson in our founding fathers. Happiness was not about yellow smiley faces, self-esteem, or even feelings. Given the Aristotelian insight that man, we, are social creatures whose life find meaning in our relationship with other human beings, 
Jeffersonian happiness evokes virtue, good good conduct, and generous citizenship. Another way of saying the pursuit of happiness from what he meant is the pursuit of the good of the whole. Becoming the good of the whole was... I'm sorry. The pursuit of the good of the whole, all of society, our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, our friends, and even complete strangers. Because the good of the whole was crucial to genuine well-being of the individual. My goodness. So the point here is that what, what our founding fathers were talking about when they said we have the right to the pursuit of happiness and what is actually what we interpret that to mean today are two radically different things. We have taken this grand concept of the fact that we are all a community, kind of what was talked about in in 1 Corinthians when Paul said that we are all part of one body. And as one part suffers, we all suffer. And as one part succeeds, we all rejoice. And we've truncated it. We, we, we've fixated it into, it's about me. It's about my well-being. It's about my happiness, regardless of what that costs in terms of other people. And so I'm going to pursue that. And, and, and as I talk about this, I recognize this in myself. I recognize in myself this natural tendency to compete with other people for happiness. I saw it this week. We, Mike Jones and I went over to help some people from our church move. And um, when we got there, I mean, God kind of designed Mike and I to move heavy objects. So that's kind of what we do. And when we got there, the intention was we're just going to help the Tistammers move. But there was this table full of baseball cards because Jack Tistammer used to sell baseball cards. And so he had a ton of them. And I mean, he had an entire moving van full of them that he was taking with him, taking with him. But there was a table that he goes, these are the cards I don't really need anymore if I'm not taking with me. And suddenly my posture changed completely. From being one of, I'm here to help, show me what to do, to being one of, I want it, you know? (laughs) 30 seconds before, I had absolutely no need whatsoever for baseball cards in my world. Suddenly my son's futures are dependent upon getting as many of those baseball cards. And there's this term that sociologists use called the law of limited good. The law of limited good states that when there is a perceived limited amount of something, whether it's time, property, energy, money, whatever, our natural tendency as human beings is to compete with everybody else for that thing. And suddenly my attitude towards Mike changed. I was like Schmeagel over here in the corner going, my precious. And I'm thinking of any way that I can to get like to, to kind of say mine, stay away. Don't touch. These are mine. And I am, I was, I was embarrassed in the moment because I knew I was kind of talking on this subject. I'm going, I am such an unbelievable hypocrite right now. <laughs> and I was disgusted with myself as I went, I was driving home and I have this giant box full of baseball cards that I don't have any place to put in my house, but I'm going to find a place because I need them. And it's just like, my gosh, I am guilty. And it's insidious. And it's normal. I see it when I drive down the street or down the freeway 
And I'm bobbing and weaving. I am zigzagging back and forth. I am competing with people because where I have to go is more important than where they have to go. And my time is more important than their time. I wouldn't articulate it that way. I would never suggest that, but I think it. And it, and it just colors everything that I do. And I get frustrated when people slow me down. I see it in my home life. When I come home from, from work and my kids are wanting attention and they're wanting to play with dad. And of course, I want to love my boys and invest in them. But at the same time, I want some me time. I, I just want to relax. And I'm, and I'm torn between do I, do I care for them and be with them and spend time with them or do I do, do that me time? And the more and more that I fixate on this kind of attitude that it's about my comfort and it's about meeting my needs and my entitlement, I deserve to be comfortable. The less time I spend with my boys, the more time I give into my own needs, and I let TV be their parent. Now, how many of you, as I'm talking about this, kind of recognize that same sort of self-centeredness in yourself? And thank you for your honesty. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, just go ahead and spend the rest of the morning polishing your halo <laughs> while I talk to us realists. And even as I talk about this, I know that we kind of probably sense a little bit in it in ourselves. But there's another part of us that I don't necessarily know if we really recognize just how deep the dry rot of self-centeredness goes. In a lot of ways, we're like fish who don't even recognize that we're wet because we've never known anything other than water. We have been raised in a society that celebrates self-centeredness, that celebrates the cult of the individual. And so it's understandable why we would go, I don't, I don't necessarily see that. I mean, this is just normal. I'm, I'm, I'm no worse than anybody else. But that's true. We are all like this. Which begs the question, then how do we begin to compete against a mindset that says it's about me and my happiness over and above other people? And toward that end, Paul talks about it specifically in Philippians chapter 2. So if you would, turn there with me. It's one of the epistles that Paul is writing to one of the churches that he has been investing in. And as Paul is writing this, it's, it's probably helpful for us to remember that he's sitting in prison in Rome, imprisoned for sharing the gospel. And he's writing to encourage all of these churches that he's planted, where he's encouraged a lot of the believers. And, and, and by the way, it goes General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we're in Philippians chapter 2. And what I want to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we're going to step back and we'll take each portion and kind of dive a little bit deeper into it. We're going to camp here this morning, so hopefully you guys will just open up a Bible and, and read directly out of there. We'll go analog version this morning, or you can go off of your phone if that works too. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing. The literal term there is he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine amongst them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. It's, it's really important for us to remember the context into which Paul is writing this. He's sitting in prison, awaiting a trial that could very well end with his execution because he was sharing the gospel. And earlier in chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to turn there for just a moment, Paul actually talks about his circumstances. He talks about being in prison. And I, I'll tell you this. I'll be straight up front. If I were in prison, I'd be like, get me out of here. Somebody, anybody post bail for me, please. But Paul's attitude is so radically different. Listen to this in verse 12 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do so out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Notice that same use of that term, selfish ambition, here. They preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now, if somebody were actually intentionally trying to make things worse for me as I'm in prison simply by sharing the gospel, I'd be a little bit upset. Dare I say I'd be angry at them. But listen to Paul's heart here. But what does it matter? What does it matter that they're trying to stir up trouble for me? What does it matter that they're trying to make it more uncomfortable for me? That they're trying to actually encourage them to kill me? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I feel like Paul's posture in his imprisonment perfectly epitomizes what he's talking about, what he's exhorting the Philippian church and us to do in Philippians chapter 2. He does not allow his own comfort to supersede the advancement of the gospel. He recognizes what really matters. He recognizes that his life and his own comfort are fleeting things. And he ultimately submits them to God and says, have your way. And now he exhorts us to do the same thing. So let's turn back now to Philippians chapter 2 and we're going to go through this. <clears throat> Therefore, in light of the fact that 
Christ has died on our behalf. And remember, he's writing to Christ followers here. He's writing to Christians who know what it's like to be saved, who know what it's like to have been forgiven, who know what it's like to be part of a community where they belong and are part of a family of God. Therefore, if you, as Christ followers, have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you've experienced any sort of comfort from the love that Jesus has for you, if you have any common um, sharing in the Spirit, if you've actually experienced the Holy Spirit working in you, if you have any tenderness and compassion, even a little bit, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. In other words, if you truly recognize that you're part of the family of God, then act like it. Stop backbiting and bickering and fighting. Stop trying to vie for the best positions socially, economically. Stop thinking only about yourself and begin to work together. You are part of a family. Act like it because people are watching us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't be like these guys who are sharing the gospel for the wrong motivation. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you the interests of the others. Man, if there was ever kind of a a recipe for dealing with our own internal self-centeredness, it's this, isn't it? This flies in the face of what our society tells us we should do because we, as human beings, have no problem putting ourselves first. We have no problem thinking about our own needs, thinking about our own comfort, thinking about our own goals and dreams, or even fears. And what Paul is saying is, in the same way that you worry about yourself, be concerned about other people. In fact, go so far as to place their needs ahead of your own. Which is a big thing. I mean, Jesus said it this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice here he's not suggesting, this isn't a value statement. He's not saying they are more valuable than you are in any way. This is more he's addressing the attitude of our hearts. Saying value somebody. Place them above yourself. Humble yourself so that you view them as more important than yourself. That you, that you view their needs as more important than your own comfort. I think about what this might look like, hypothetically speaking. Let's say my wife and I are putting our boys to bed. And, and what often happens there is that Ethan loves to cuddle with mom way more than dad. So at one point I'll, we'll be praying with him and Ethan will go, okay, dad, you can leave now. And I'm dismissed, and I get to go out, and Kathy's like, yay, I get to cuddle with him. And we're both exhausted at this point, hypothetically speaking. Um, so I walk out of the room, and I just, I, I can't wait to open my book and read or, or go see what's on TV, but as I walk by the kitchen, hypothetically speaking, the, the kitchen looks like a bomb has gone off. And in my mind, I'm going, well, <laughs> I didn't make that mess. The majority of those dishes aren't even mine. And the reality is Kathy made that mess when she made dinner. It's her mess. 
And I want to go rest. I mean, I deserve to rest. What Paul is saying in this instance is, don't put your own comfort ahead of the well-being of the whole. Think about other people. Think about your family before you think about yourself. And by the way, don't go in and do the dishes out of resentment. I'm so put upon. I can't believe I have to do these things right now. This is so lame. Do it out of an act of love. Because the reality is when we do these things joyfully, we are worshiping God. We worship because God showed us how to love first, didn't he? He showed us through Christ. We have experienced love. Before we ever bent a knee to him, he showed us love by sacrificing himself in the form of Jesus Christ. So we are following Jesus' example. And that's exactly what Paul now says as he continues this discussion in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus did, who being in very nature God, Jesus was God. And yet he chose to take on human flesh, be born a baby, come to this earth, walk amongst us, experience all of the things that we experience. Hunger, pain, sadness, loss, temptation. He experienced it all for us. He, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. And he took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which, by the way, was not only the most painful, torturous way to die, but it was also the most... Uh, humbling. It was. It said, "Cursed is anybody who hangs on a tree." It was. It was a death reserved for prisoners, enemies of the state, the lowest of the low. Here's the here's the example that Jesus set for us, and we can go through any one of the four gospels, and it's replete with example after example of the ways that Jesus, who is God, remember. And could have used his power to be anything he wanted. If he wanted to come to earth as a man, he could have been the king of the world. Leonardo DiCaprio. He could have been anything, but he chose to come as a servant. He could have been born into a palace and had a very comfortable childhood. He chose to be born to a blue-collar carpenter's family. Kind of showing that he is not only the Messiah of the wealthy, of the in-crowd, of the spiritually significant. He's the Messiah of everyone. And then as his life began, and we begin to see his ministry being recorded in these Gospels, we see time and again the ways that Jesus submitted his own needs, his own well-being, his own comfort to the needs of others. As he walked along, he was constantly coming towards the outcasts, the sick, the hurting, the social outcasts like prostitutes and tax collectors, sinners, even though it brought upon himself the ire of, of the religious elite. They'd be going up to his disciples going, why does, why does your, your rabbi 
eat with sinners and tax collectors. My goodness. And they disrespected Jesus for it. But Jesus recognized that he had come to call the sinners to repentance. It's the, it's the sick that need a doctor, not the healthy. He surrounded himself. He let the little children come to him, even though those little children could do nothing to advance his ministry, could not financially support him. Let the kids come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He would reach out and touch lepers and heal them, even though it made him ceremonially unclean. He was constantly busy but he made a point of being interruptible time and again. I think of the time when, when his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. Jesus hears about this and all he wants to do is get away from the needs and the crowds and just spend some time grieving. And so he takes his disciples out into the wilderness and when he gets out there, he's, he is confronted with this huge horde of people who are sick and hungry and needy. And what does it say that he did? Did he get frustrated and irritated and, and resentful of the fact that they would ask more of him in this time of need? It says that he felt what? Compassion for them. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he spends the vast majority of that day teaching and healing and ultimately feeding a multitude of people. One of the biggest miracles that takes part, place during his earthly ministry on a day when all he wanted to do was just grieve alone. And ultimately, he gets that time. Once the crowds go home, he goes back up onto the mountain, he sends his disciples away, and he just spends some time with God. But he was willing to postpone his own needs, his own comfort for the needs in front of him of complete strangers. He showed his servant heart even to his disciples. I mean, because think about this. He's, he's a rabbi. He could have had his disciples waiting on him hand and foot, and instead, he does just the opposite. He takes the most menial tasks. He gets down on his hands and knees, and he washes the dirty, disgusting feet of his men. My wife won't touch my feet. Imagine touching 12 men's dirty feet that have been walking around in sandals all day on a dusty road. And yet he did that. And he said, in the, in the same way that I am serving you, and I'll call you to serve others. And then finally and ultimately, the most, um, the most spectacular way that he served is simply by going to the cross. And we see in the final hours of his life, he was terrified of it. I mean, remember, he's a human being. He's going to feel every ounce of pain. And spiritually, he's going to feel the estrangement from God as he takes all of the sins of mankind upon him. And so he was begging, God, if there's any way that this cup can pass for me, let that happen. But not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is, I would really prefer not to do it this way, but I submit my life. I submit my comfort into your hands. And he allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be beaten humiliated and ultimately crucified in the most painful and humiliating way that any person could die. To which Paul continues on now in verse 9. Therefore, because Christ was willing to humble himself, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, not for his own glory, but to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to make very clear that Jesus did not submit himself to this painful death because he knew God was going to exalt him. His actions were not motivated by God's plans to to glorify Jesus. His actions were motivated by a, a humble willingness to submit himself to God and be obedient. And by a humble willingness to love us. And in the same way, we as Christ followers should not allow our, our actions to be motivated by some belief that if, if I care for this person, you know, if I stop with this person who's broken down on the side of the road, God's going to bless me or make sure that my car never breaks down. Or, you know, if, if I give this person who's asking for money, if I lend them money without ever asking for them to re- repay it, which is the only way, by the way, to lend money, unless you're a bank, um, if I, if I lend them this money, then God is going to financially provide for me. He may do that, but that should not be our motivation. Instead, we should be motivated by the fact that we have already received the greatest gift that we could ever receive. That through Jesus' sacrifice, our sins are no longer counted against us. And we are rightfully called sons and daughters of the creator and sustainer of this universe. God is our Father. That's the greatest gift we could ever receive. It cannot be taken for us. And therefore, the ways that we love other people can be a response. Not a prerequisite. Not this mindset that if I do this, God, you're going to bless me, right? But God, you have blessed me. Therefore, let me go and serve others. You know, this morning we're, we're kind of presented with an antidote to our own tendency to place ourselves on the throne of our own hearts or, or, or to think of the universe as Eric-centric or, you know, you fill in the name-centric. The world, the universe does not revolve around us. We are not the central characters of our own little story. But our tendency is to do that, to make ourselves the center of our story. And everybody that comes into contact with us is a bit player in our own story, including God. They're either aids or they're obstacles to us getting what we want. And what Paul is presenting us with is simply a different perspective on life that says it's not about you. You are not the central character. You can lay down your need to be in control. You can lay down your need to get everything that you want. You can lay down the need to be the focus and stop looking at life as your own little story and begin to recognize that you get to be part of a much greater epic narrative. When we allow Jesus Christ to sit on the throne of our hearts and say, have your way, I sure would like to have a comfortable life, but... I know I'm not promised it. In fact, in this world, we are only promised trouble. But we can take heart in the fact that he has already overcome the world and that even death doesn't get the last word. That's huge. 
When we begin to recognize that we are aliens and strangers living in this world, that this is not our home, this is not all we have to look forward to, and all the money that we accumulate will never truly make us happy, then suddenly we we don't have to keep such a firm grip on our stuff. We don't have to compete with our neighbors and our friends and our family for things. When we allow Jesus Christ to take His rightful place in our life, then suddenly we wake up to the fact that we're part of a grand epic narrative in which God is redeeming the world and He uses us. We get to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. And that's way more exciting, by the way, than trying to to live up to being a worthy central character of our own little stories. And it changes the way we begin to view people. They're no longer competition. They're brothers and sisters. Even the ones that don't even know that they're a son or daughter of God. And so Paul then continues in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. We have a part to play in laying down our self-centeredness. In laying down our need to be in control, we play a part in that. This isn't just something that the Holy Spirit goes, kapow, you're done, you're fixed. No, go and be a little Jesus. We have a part to play in this. We have to choose to battle against our self-centeredness, our narcissism. But we cannot do it by ourselves. And I don't want us to delude ourselves into thinking that we are somehow in control of that. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in, according, in order to fulfill His good purpose. As we submit our lives to Christ and say, have your way with me. Show me how to love my wife. Show me how to love my children. Show me how to love my mother-in-law. Show me how to love my coworkers. Show me how to love my neighbor who parties into the odd hours of night. Show me how to love that person who cut me off. Show me how to love that stranger that's really irritating as we submit ourselves to Him, He begins to work in us. Verse 14, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Stop backbiting. Stop bickering. Stop competing with one another so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation that says, hey, it's fine to be self-centered. Everybody's self-centered. And if and when we allow ourselves to become truly submitted to God, if and when we allow Jesus Christ truly to sit on the throne of our hearts and become, begin calling the shots, and if and when we truly are able to unclench the fingers of our hearts or from around our stuff and our comfort and our ego, our need to be number one, our need to be most important, then and only then, Verse 15, will we shine amongst our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, and complete strangers that live around us like stars in the sky as we hold firmly on to the word of life? When we begin to recognize that our own comfort is not the greatest good, then we get to join Jesus in his act of redemption then we get to lay down our little stories and get to be part of a grander epic 
Jesus summed up all of this with this. The world will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. So the charge for us this morning is we better start loving one another. Because I know for myself, I am tired of perpetuating the belief that Christians are nothing more than judgmental hypocrites who don't actually live what they believe. Nothing more than regular people who say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but really you look at their life and there's nothing different. I truly desire to be transformed so that when people come into contact with me, they don't go, wow, that Eric is an amazing person. But they go, wow, there's something different about him and I want that. Our purpose as sons and daughters of God is not simply to be comfortable. Our purpose as sons and daughters of God is to represent Jesus and introduce people to him. We will never transform somebody else's life. We could be used by God to do it. But ultimately, only God will transform their lives. So the greatest goal of our lives is to introduce people to Christ and let Him change them. That is our charge. That's our challenge. And I'll be the first to say, man, I need a lot of work. And I'm really grateful that God gives us a Holy Spirit who works in us. And I know it's a long process. That's the sanctification process. The process of being set apart by God, for God, to be used as his representatives. But it's the only life that is truly life. So I'm in. And I hope that you guys are as well. Let's pray. And we're going to spend some time responding. God, I thank you that um, your love is not dependent upon our actions. I thank you that you have modeled for us in ways that we could never possibly imagine. You modeled for us sacrificial servanthood. You took upon yourself the pain, the punishment, and the penalty that that we've earned for ourselves and are still earning. And I thank you that, that in spite of the fact that we struggle in our sin or just revel in it, you still love us and you still move towards us and then you not only clean us up, you use us as representatives of you. And I pray, my prayer for my brothers and sisters in this room, my prayer for my brothers and sisters down the street and all of the other churches that are gathering this morning and around this country and around this world, my prayer is that we would represent you well that we would begin to recognize that we're not the center of our own little universe. We are not the main character of our own little story. All of history is your story. And we desire to join in this epic narrative of redemption. So would you help to strip away the stuff that hinders us? Strip away the self-centeredness that we may not even recognize. The, the sense of entitlement. The desire to compete against one another for those limited goods. I mean, you're the God of the universe. You can give us anything that we need. You provide in ways that we can't even fathom. 
And I know that there are stories in here of ways that you've provided miraculously. So there is no limited goods. And I pray that we would not be limited in the way that we love. That that would not hinder us from truly loving because you first loved us. Help us to be your representatives. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.